Hello and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst and there are, yes, exactly two weeks left. Uh, are you exhausted? Overwhelmed by all the news and at the same time finding it repetitive and at times actually boring? Deja vu all over again? Trump trashes reality? Biden hunkers down in Delaware? The virus surges again to astronomical historic levels? Even the idea of another debate, which is coming on Thursday, seems somehow anticlimactic. I mean, I live for elections and I am bored. So honestly, I'm bored of the pain, bored of the crises. So honestly, this is tough. I, for one, am going stir crazy. If you feel overwhelmed by too much happening, it is because too much is happening. That's how history feels when you are living in it when you are working through it. So I need to say this, if we lose our focus in these last two weeks, we will regret it for years. Progressives are closer than we have been in decades, century perhaps, to the kind of political upheaval that will, and I hate to say it this way, open the door to our goals. This is why we can't give up. That's why this matters right now. That is what matters at this moment. It does help to remember that a lot of what is going on actually doesn't matter very much or is intentionally meant to distract from what does matter. Trump trashes another CNN correspondent, whatever. Trump says for the umpteenth time he may not accept the election. Pay attention to that because that is what this is about. Fascism doesn't always roll into town on a column of tanks. Sometimes it bores you into apathy with numbing repetition. The news cycle is not a measure of what matters. We know that. Trump gets away with things by saying them so many times at the media, and then the rest of us stop listening. Overturning the election is as big of a threat today as it was the first time he said it. And as we've discussed, the response should be a vote so massive that Trump can't fight it. In the chaos and distractions, there are other things that really matter. Amy Coney Barrett, remember her? Oh, yeah. The sixth right-wing vote for the Supreme Court. Stopping her confirmation in the Senate is a long shot, but we have to try. We aren't afraid of long shots. Progressivism was a long shot until the day we started winning. Senator Chuck Schumer tried yesterday, because of us, by the way, of our voices, to prevent her confirmation before the election. He moved to adjourn the Senate until after the election. And then he lost. The Republicans are barreling ahead to confirm her by early next week. It's despicable. But the Republicans don't care what we think. They only care if we have the power to stop them. Which brings us to something else. The Senate. Oh, I know the Senate is a bastion of status quo thinking, a sump tank of corporate money. We know this. I haven't even mentioned, of course, Senator Kamala Harris and what I think of her, but but Amy Coney Barrett sums up the difference between a Republican-controlled Senate and the Democratic-run Senate we could have after the election. If a Republican Senate, we will in that Republican Senate that we have right now, and, and even with a presidency, we will fight defensive actions every day just to protect abortion rights, same-sex marriage, the Affordable Care Act, and a livable planet. In a Democratic Senate, As angry as some of them will make us, we can fight every day for real Medicare for all, a livable wage, perhaps reflective of the needs of a human being, fair housing, the Green New Deal, and a real 
hearty response to this COVID crisis and the economic disaster as that's a result of it. This is through our existing progressive senators in the Senate and pressuring the young opportunistic senators who need progressives to win. I am looking at you, uh, Corey. I am looking at you, uh, Senator Cinema. There is a real difference, and, and that difference, it's on the ballot right now. So we have to hang in there. As activists find, we have to find the image that motivates us. Finish strong, play through the buzzer, run through the tape. It ain't over until the fat lady sings or the fat man cries. After all this, we will need a detox. Just hopefully not drinking Clorox. Uh, we have a wonderful show today. We have Derek Black here to discuss education and later Giovanni Alcibia and Napoleon DeLegend on to talk about voting and some of the stuff that's up right now. But first, here is what is at the top of my newsfeed. A recent interview from NPR with journalist Tessa Stewart reveals how the Trump presidency has impacted U.S. immigration with its harsh exclusionary policies. Stewart makes the case that a Biden presidency will defend DACA and end travel bans and family separations. That was, you know, of course, a previous policy of the Obama administration. So that's actually something to pay attention to. What policies does Biden have no choice to turn around on? Because Trump has taken Obama policies and made them so much worse. He will reverse. There are several policies, including education, which we'll talk about later. He could reverse that were Obama policies. So she took this reporter, Stewart, takes a look at an uptick in technical changes as well as, quote, big sweeping changes, end quote, to understand not only how Trump has ramped up ICE raids countrywide, but also how he has used policy and executive actions to structurally change the way immigration works in the United States. It means, of course, that we need to vote Trump out of office, but also that advocacy for immigration rights won't end simply because a new president has been installed. We need to comprehensively understand the policy changes that Trump has made to build a lasting system of cruelty for people immigrating to the United States. And as leftists, we need to organize around dismantling the entire policy system. Uh, we had amazing news today, uh, this weekend, out of Bolivia. The presidential election was won by the socialist candidate Luis Arce. The party, of course, was the former party to President Evo Morales, which he belongs to, the former president who was ousted. After lifting millions of people out of extreme poverty, excuse me, and nationalizing major industries, Morales was forced out of office by a coup that installed the theocratic conservative Jeanine Añez. They deemed that election to a fourth term illegitimate for no discernible reason. We know this history and a review of the U.S.'s opposition to Bolivia's nationalization of its natural resources, looking at you, Elon Musk, will give you a pretty good idea why. But there is no doubt Evo had the people's support then and with 52.4% of the vote, the socialists have it now. Indigenous women leaders and allied signatories wrote a letter to several of the world's major financial institutions demanding an end to extractive pipeline projects and the tar sands sector. Major authors of the letter include Rebecca Adamson, Cherokee and founder of the First Nations and First Peoples Worldwide, Tara Hauska, friend of the show, friend of Matriarch, advisor, uh, which is, is she's the uh, founder of, I'm going to mess this up, I'm not even going to say it, Kauchiching First Nation, 
Uh, she's an attorney as well. Winona LaDuke, one of the most well-known uh, Native Indigenous activists, White Earth Nation, and executive director of Honor the Earth. Those are just a few of the names. The letter draws a direct tie between Indigenous rights and climate justice, arguing the destructive practices like those of the tar sands and pipeline sectors have threatened the safety of Indigenous women, brought about elevated COVID-19 threats during construction, and grievously harmed the planet. The leaders demand the replacement of these exploitative industries with a just transition to clean energy. Further proof that a Green New Deal is in the best interest of cultural, social, and environmental survival. All right, up next, we'll take a quick break. We're going to be talking about education, what's at stake right now uh, at this moment, even under Trump, but also what could potentially be at stake uh, under a Biden presidency. That is going to be just after the break. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Kunst. Education uh, is a topic that is is mobilizing the country right now. In red states, there are propositions on the ballot to fund public education. Uh, the public education system has been in crisis for decades, and Democrats have had a big part in that. I am very excited to have our next guest on. He is a professor of law at the University of Southern Carol- uh, South Carolina, excuse me, uh, and he is the author of. Uh, the, excuse me, as I just, schoolhouse burning. It's like, I can't even read. Uh, I don't have my glasses on right now. It's really killing me. (laughs) The lights are killing me. Schoolhouse burning, public education, and the assault on American democracy, which explains the threat uh, that current trends pose, not just to public education, but to democracy itself. Derek Black, thank you for joining us. I think we can unmute you now, right? Good on that end. Zoom does not allow us to do it for you. You have to do it for yourself. Well, I think I did it, and then you hit it at the same time, and it muted me back. But yeah, thanks so much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Uh, so I, you know, I want to start off with just the state of education um, politically right now, and then work backwards if that if that works. You sure. know, um, I say this because Arizona, for instance, has a prop on uh, a proposal on its ballot right now proposition to increase funding for education. It's in a right-to-work state. It's one of these red states uh, where teachers, public school teachers, have mobilized. Um, of course, during the pandemic, this their case just is much, much stronger. So what, what does it look like right now, the state of public education? Well, I mean, I think you laid it out well to begin with, but simply to say, you know, public education got hammered really hard following the 2008 recession. And about half of our states, the public the levels of school funding before the current pandemic right, were still below their pre-recession levels of 2008. So we still had not made up the last, uh, the last recession. And so a lot of those states, they're now getting hit with a double dip, right? They weren't where they needed to be before, and now they're cut even, even further. And you mentioned Arizona. I mean, you know, th- Arizona was declared ground zero in the fight to privatize education by the Koch brothers and other organizations of that sort. And they have been hammering and hammering and hammering. You know, the, the, the bright spot, as you point out, is that, you know, teachers and not just teachers, parents and students are, are pushing back with them. And so, you know, we've seen tens of thousands of people take to the streets in 2018 and 2019. That's been a little bit more difficult in 2020. But, you know, th- there's a lot of regular folks that are upset about what they see happening in their state houses. Uh, so when just looking back on on this this process, okay, so here we are in two thousand uh, uh, twenty. Excuse me, I don't even know what year it is. We're in two thousand twenty. Um, 
you know, Betsy DeVos is our education secretary. Clearly, uh, she's she's a big part of the charter school um, push across America. But that obviously didn't start with her. It didn't. It's George W. Bush was a big part of this. But Obama, uh, of course, was was very friendly to charter schools. And I I guess I'm looking at this from the perspective of how are we going to get out of this when you have somebody leading the Democratic ticket right now, who is a product of a White House that pushed for a lot of the measures that kept the charter school movement going. Yeah, I mean, I think that you, you sort of hit the, the nail on the head. And just, just to give you know listeners just a little bit of, of background, I mean, charter schools had been capped in a lot of states. So North Carolina, for instance, had said 100 charter schools in the state of North Carolina, no more, which is to say maximum one per school district across the state. But, you know, during the last recession, uh, Secretary Duncan said that, you know, these applications for new federal funds will be in jeopardy, jeopardized by any state who places an artificial cap on on charter schools. So, you know, in a moment of financial distress, a lot of states uh, eliminated those caps and you saw, you know, as go from having 1 million students in charter schools to 3 million students in charter schools. So enormous expansion. You know, you are expressing a fear that a lot of folks have expressed, which is, well, if that's the last administration, is this just going to be more of the same? You know, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot we don't know about Joe Biden, to be quite honest. I don't mean that in a bad or a good way, right? That if you wanted to look at the at the most detailed progressive plan out there, that that would have been uh, Elizabeth Warren's. And and by full disclosure, you know, the campaign reached out to me, and I, I gave them what they needed to come up with a with a funding plan to fix America's schools. Um, you know, Joe lot lot vaguer on 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 the on the points there, and so. But I will say, you know, the Network for Public Education had a convening in in Pittsburgh last November, maybe it was December, where all of the Democratic candidates showed up, and you know, there was a real show of force by public education advocates, and you know, he talked the talk then. Now there were some generalities to it, but he did he did talk the talk. You know, how that shakes out in real policy, I don't know, because there's ultimately going to be experts that he he hires to run his department that are going to move us in one direction or the other. And, you know, I don't know who those people are going to be. And I've heard names, but I don't know who they're going to be yet. So, I mean, it, from my perspective, I just think that politically uh, it, it would he really has no choice. I mean, just same thing with with Medicare for all, for instance, like these might have been cornerstones of the Obama the ACA might have been a cornerstone of the Obama administration, but we're at a different time, and the political pressure is much more sophisticated and organized and frustrated, too. I mean, I have no doubt that the public, you know, Randy Weingarten was promised a ton. And did the teachers receive it? No. Um, but even in Democratic states, I mean, there's this is this is not just a red state issue. This is not just a North Carolina, Arizona issue. Air, uh, New York, for instance, uh, the charter school movement in New York held up the legislature, arguably, for quite a bit of time, um, paid a lot of Democratic senators to go work with Republicans, uh, creating that IDC dilemma uh, so they could push for more charter schools. And now you see a return to a Democratic legislature that is more public school focused. And I mean, notoriously, like those New York City schools are underfunded. And now you see what's happening um, in the midst of this COVID crisis. So so can we just rewind? Let's go all the way back. Let's go back to like the Koch brothers. Like, how did this all start? Well, you know, I would say that obviously the Koch brothers don't want to pay any more taxes to support your children or my children. They want as, they want their tax bill to be as low as possible, right? Or as Grover Norquist has said, to shrink government to the size that you can drown it in the bathtub, right? And at the federal level, that is 
health care and social security. But at the state level, that's public education, right? Public education consumes the lion's share of all state and local resources. So if you're trying to shrink government to the size that you can drown it in a bathtub, you're talking about kids in public schools, right? Mm -hmm. At the state level. So I think for that group of folks, this is just about money and small government ideology. I think there's another sort of part of that constituency that is religiously motivated, that have always felt that they're double taxed and that the government is discriminating against them and they ought to be able to pursue their their religious efforts on, on the public dime. Um, and then there's this third, what I find far more sympathetic part of that constituency, which is also part of the charter school constituency. It is true that we have minority communities across this country that never in the history of the United States have been fully served by their state and local government. And so when you hear, you know, some white guy, even if he went to integrated schools and does race work saying, hey, believe in the public schools, those public schools haven't served them. And they're ultimately saying, look, you know, we have to have solutions. And I'm sympathetic to that. My argument is not really one against those families in a precarious situation. My argument is that, you know, the enemy is not the public school system. The enemy is the state legislature who refuses to fund the public school system. And the enemy is the one who's trying to sell you vouchers and charters. So be careful about making a deal with, with the enemy. So when you talk about these legislatures that have been have been pushing for, um, you know, not funding public schools properly, uh, how did that start? Who, 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 where were the, the, you talk about Arizona being ground zero. Um, was that where they tested it out and then started expanding to other states? Well, you know, we, we certainly have ground zero for vouchers being Florida, for instance. I mean, yeah. Florida following the recession, Florida had had their, their first voucher bill declared unconstitutional by the Florida Supreme Court. So they go back to the drawing board and come up with all of these, what we call in the field, neo-vouchers and tax credit systems to try to find workarounds. So you went from a state that was spending somewhere around 30 or $40 million a year on private school tuition to one that is now spending $1 million a year on private school education, right? And so that that's just tremendous. That's ground zero. And then you see other people jumping on the bandwagon. Indiana then enacts mm -hmm. a charter school program, I mean, a voucher program that was even bigger than the one in in Florida. And of course, that that's Mike Pence. He was fighting for it. He was pushing for it. Um, Nevada passed one that would have been arguably the largest in the country that it would authorize every single student in the state of Nevada to access a voucher for private schools if they chose it. State Supreme Court struck that down, fortunately. Arizona tried to copy that. And really, because of the advocacy of, of teachers, were able to push it back and make it smaller. But at least on vouchers, that's sort of the trajectory. On charter schools, you know, uh, New York and California, I think, are about 60 or 70 percent of the charter schools in the country. So just enormous wow. expansion there. Yeah. And how were they able to push that through with the legislatures in New York and California? Well, I mean, I think that... A lot of Democrats were sold on the idea that that charters, um, right? They were Democrats for education reform. It's an organization within the Democratic Party that thought this might be a solution. And I, and I will confess that I slept on the charter school issue uh, at least in the early years. That I used to talk of them as being an empty vessel, right? That you could, they don't have an inherent sort of mission or being. They can be what we want them to be. So if good people are running them, maybe maybe they could be a good thing. What I underestimated is is greed and avarice, I guess, that what you see is enormous profit taking, enormous land deals, enormous skimming off the top 
falsifying of student data, all of these sorts of things, some of which has landed folks in prison, other of which should land folks in prison. But the laws are actually so favorable that a lot of this scamming is actually legal. That's, you know, I don't have a lot of that in this book, but it's amazing how much of this fleecing of America is actually legal if you do it through a charter school. I mean, I've, I've read stories um, when I was reporting on charter schools like a few years ago for TYT. I, I was shocked to hear stories about charter schools that had shut down and kids who, you know, maybe took a gap year and then wanted to apply to college and couldn't apply to college because they couldn't get the records because the charter schools had shut down. Well, Can that, you imagine that? Yeah, I mean, it, I had I had not heard that that story before, but I mean, I think that is at least another example of the difference between public schools and charter yeah. schools. I mean, our public schools are there to be there forever for our children. They are a part of the community. And these charters, they don't really have accountability. What I thought you were going to say, which is an equally crazy story, was, was that when they shut down uh, this chain of charter schools in Ohio because of some graft and corruption, the local community said, well, we want the books, we want the computers, we want the desk. And they said, oh, no, no, no. That public money that they use to buy that, all that stuff belongs to them. So if you want it, you got to pay for it a second time. It was it was it was a rude awakening to folks to understand that actually public money is being used to buy things that the private individuals then own when they buy it with that public money. So the idea of charter schools was was not uh, it, it was distorted essentially. It was it was an idea a solution uh, for a problem a temporary problem. Can you explain like how charter schools really started to become a weapon and a mechanism for uh, for tax, for, for basically like escaping taxes and, and a tax scheme eventually and a, and a land deal. Well, so, you know, charter schools, as you said, the original idea was that teachers could experiment, right? They could, they could create models that would then teach the public school how to do it better. But not many, not many teachers or well-minded teachers started charter schools. And instead we had, you know, folks who wanted to make money, management companies that wanted to skim amounts off the top, et cetera. And so once, well, I should say, and there were states that were skeptical of that, right? So North Carolina, again, skeptical of that. Well, we'll experiment with 100, but we're not going to have 1,000 in the state. But as, you know, that network of charters began to grow, their lobbying efforts grew far more sophisticated. You mentioned in New York, Illinois, California, where they have full-time lobbyists uh, pushing an agenda and, you know, the reimbursements going up, oversight going down, and it, it really just became a perfect storm uh, for problems. And, and to be clear, there are good charter schools out there serving kids. I don't mean to say that, um, but there's a there's a 70% of them that are doing no better, if not worse than our public schools, and a huge chunk of them are, are making money for, for private investors. So let's distinguish the good ones versus the bad ones. What what are some, I mean, and, and I understand like every state has like different designs of charter schools. It's very complicated, right? Yeah, it is complicated. I mean, I, yeah, I'm, I don't know that I've like any of our models for charter schools, but what I will point out, for example, is there are charter schools that are diverse by design, right? Mm -hmm. Which is to say our neighborhoods are segregated. The district line is such that our schools are going to stay segregated. So can we create opportunities for families um, to attend integrated schools in a way the public schools don't? That That's a good thing, right? Um, can we create models where we're going to be uh, having extended learning, right, that may not be able to occur within the school district. That's a good thing, right? And so we do have those out there. 
But, you know, the bad side of charter schools is really structural, which is, you know, they can pay teachers as little as they want or they can get them for. Um, students don't have the same due process rights there as they have elsewhere. Because of the records that you mentioned, very hard to make sure they're complying with special education and disability laws. Mm -hmm. And then there's the real estate deals, which is really where the problem comes in, which is that although the charter itself, the, the entity that receives a charter from the, from, the, from the state has to be nonprofit, it can contract with whoever it wants to. And so often what you have, quite frequently, you have a nonprofit that owns the charter, but the same person who's on the board of that nonprofit charter owns all of the companies and all the real estate uh, that runs the school. And 95 to 100% of that money passes through the nonprofit and then is given to a private entity that basically rents land from itself, buys books from itself, buys computers from itself, and pays teachers as little as it can. And that and, is ultimately and, and the no, system we have. And the taxes, there's not only is there a tax break and an incentive, but because it's running through a nonprofit, they also don't have to pay taxes on the other end, right? Well, that, there is also, you know, they've also been able to purchase things at a lower at lower rates, yeah. get better deals. So there's that. Um, and, and yeah, it, it, it is quite sorted. What I, what I was going to, I thought you were going to ask us on pivot to is there's also this other piece from the state, the, the, the crowd that one wants to, you know, shrink government, which is they can cap the amount they're spending on charter schools if they want. Um, and ultimately they are reducing the state's responsibility or the state's financial load. So it's like they're arguably paying less than they should be for a quality education. And the people they're giving it for are actually taking a cut out of the money that's already insufficient in many respects. That's not all of them, right? You do have private foundations that are propping up these charter schools, but the only ones, well, primarily the only ones that are really doing a bang up job are ones that are getting a lot of external support um, beyond just state support. And those, you know, I think are, are, are trying to do right by their kids. Um, let's talk about the standards. You know, I remember waiting for Superman, the, the movie that came out in what was it, like 2009 or 10, uh, somewhere around then. Uh, it sounded like a great deal, right? Well, you know, the, there are, you know, one of the things I talk about in, in the book and in my research is that it's really founded on the idea of doing more with less and mm -hmm. probably so you can re reap a profit. But, you know, it really relies upon young folks to work at, you know, relatively low wages, work extremely long hours as teachers to try to do something that public schools can't. Well, why? Because they're paying more senior people and they pay them for the hours they work. I mean, how long can you expect to overwork and underpay a group of people yeah. and think that system's going to work? So it is a system in many respects that this so-called freedom um, is really, for, from some people's perspective, labor exploitation, or at least an, un an unrealistic model, but there's also a tremendous amount of sort of push out that's the problem here. So it's not the same students attending charter schools that attend public schools quite often, right? Because, you know, students who have maybe behavioral issues that the public schools would have to serve, the charter school tries to push out. Early charter schools in, in California had sweat equity. Now, California has since uh, banned that, but you couldn't attend the school unless your parents donated a certain number of hours to it. Well, again, right, you are filtering out certain students and filtering in others. So, so there's those problems. And in North Carolina, what we found, ironically, in a system that not integrated, but at least in terms of everyone else, was the most integrated, stable, desegregated state in the history of this country, you know, once, once Brown versus Board mandated it, 
charters became the place for white parents to flee. Now, that's not the case in every state. But in mm -hmm. North Carolina right now, the public schools are becoming browner at the same moment that the charter schools are becoming whiter. And that tells me that people wow. who do not want to participate in a diverse education environment are dissenting and opting for this quasi-private form of public education at yeah. public expense. It's like discounted private schools for them. For them, yes, it is. And, and the story is different everywhere, right? You, you go to a big city where you've got lots of just terrible charter schools, the way, the way the ones that you were describing earlier, where they're just barely providing the basics. So it really is a community-to-community -community issue, but overall, it's a flawed system. Yeah, you're, you're self-selecting. The teachers are not, uh, you know, at, at levels that they would be if they were in a union, for instance. But there's also, isn't there, a, there's a pressure right now to unionize some of these charter schools, too, internally? Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot, you've had young folks that got into the business. Maybe they like the school, maybe they like the community, and they realize this is not a sustainable career, mm -hmm. right? Or they realize that the expectations are, are not going to hold up. And so, yes, you do have... Um, this this movement in some places to try try to unionize, you know whether that ha I think that's going to be a hard to be quite honest a hard hurdle for them to cross in yeah. part because as you noted you know we can always close a charter school and open another one somewhere else so I do think it, it's going to be tough to cross that threshold um, but you know we'll see. So let's talk about just um, the map in terms of funding public education right now. I mean we we under Trump or Biden I mean it's it it seems like the public opinion is starting to shift, even with Republicans uh, when it comes to funding public education. It seems like there's the shifting against charter schools and also being more in favor of, of fully, like they're starting to understand, oh, our public schools are broken because they're not being funded, which is of course tied to property taxes. So. Where do you where do you see this going in the next few months? Yeah, I mean, well, I talk about this a good deal in the book, which is if you look at in the southeast United States, ironically, right, they, they did these they did surveys about a year and a half ago, uh, demographically representative surveys. Right. So based upon how many Republicans, how many Democrats, how many independents live in, in the south race, all of that. And what they found was that only a couple of percentage points separated Democrats from Republicans on these questions that you're raising. Right? Should is there a problem with inequality? Should schools be fairly funded? Should we, you know, spend more on them? And when I say only a couple of points, I'm talking about, you know, 80 to 85 percent of Republicans and Democrats saying this is a problem that needs to be solved. Now you might say, well, if that's the, that that's the polling, Derek, then why isn't this happening? Well, there has unfortunately been an enormous disconnect between the people who are in the legislature and the people who are voting for them. So we've, we've had people who have captured primary victories, primarily in the Republican Party, who have ascended to positions of power and are beholding to relatively narrow groups, right, the sort of Koch-type groups, not to the voters who of both parties want them to do something differently. So I think what we have, or I know what we have, is a logjam. And I, you know, I'm not a political scientist. I don't know how we undo this logjam, other than to say that it is time for voters uh, to begin to hold their officials responsible. And that means of both parties. I mean, we have lived in a country, never perfect, but you haven't went to the ballot box thinking, well, if I'm a Republican, I'm voting against public education. I mean, this is actually the first election sure in my life, and arguably the first election in the history of this country, that we have ever had a nominee for the president of the United States who was not pro-public education. Yeah. We've had our differences. You know, you mentioned Bush. Hey, No Child Left Behind passed by 90 percent in the House and the Senate. 
the you know the Every Student Succeeds Act during the Obama administration when they could not agree on the time of day. Yeah. Passed at 90%, right? To try to do something for our public schools. This is the first time in history we've had a president or a presidential candidate that doesn't support them. So that means, hey, look, the election's easy for me. But and I don't know, you know, what, what the demographics of all your listeners out there, I can guess. But, you know, so I mean, I'm preaching to the choir, but to your Republican friends out there, if you're listening, those folks, when they go to the poll this fall, this just is this isn't just about taxes. This isn't just about the economy. This isn't just about regulation and foreign affairs this year for the first time in your lifetime. This is also about public education. Mm-hmm. So that means that some people who go who normally vote Republican are going to have to choose between their kids and their taxes. And that, that, that's, a tough, that's a tough decision to make. That is a great message. Uh, so in terms of, of, of how to pay for it, you know, the, the, the famous line, how are you going to pay for it? How are you going to pay for it? How are you going to pay for, for uh, fully funding our, our public schools when they're in just such disarray? Well, you know, I was I was on I did a debate with the Cato Institute Oof. guy, and he was <laughs> he was hammering me about this, and I just leaned over and I said, for the cost of a couple of F eighteens, that's how. I mean, on one level, that's right. Um, if it, you know, I'm yes, we're talking big money. You hear a word like quadrupling, you know, the federal investment in low income students in America, that sounds like a lot. Well, you know what? We we only invest about fifteen billion a year in low income students at the federal level right now, I'm talking about getting us to 60. And when you compare that to things that we do in the military and interstates that we build, it's not that big of a number. It honestly Mm -hmm. is not that big of a number, particularly when you think about what it saves. During the last recession, I'll be quick, but there was, you know, a a, a law enforcement uh, group that did the data and came up with the study that said, I'm the guy you paid later. He said, for every dollar you spend on pre-K now, you'll say four later in juvenile justice and welfare costs. So ultimately, uh, this is a way to save money too, yeah. if we're willing to, to be, uh, to look beyond the, the immediate uh, disaster that we're staring at right now. Well, Republicans famously like to think long-term in terms of power. Maybe they should think long-term in terms of investment too. <laughs> Uh, Derek, really, really interesting conversation. I think we could talk for, for about an hour on this subject. I love it. Uh, check out his book, Schoolhouse Burning, Public Education and the Assault on American Democracy. I think now more than ever, we see that up close, what is at stake uh, in terms of, of, of the infrastructure of our country, in terms of who we're investing in, in terms of how to protect our teachers who are at risk right now, who aren't being supplied with basic uh, tools as it is. And now with a pandemic, um, they're in more of a crisis. So I really appreciate you joining us, Derek Black. Thanks for your work. And um, maybe, you know, we'll have you back on to talk about what what happens under a Biden administration. Yeah. (laughs) Sounds good. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks. All right, guys, we will be back right after the break with our panel. We have Giovanni Alcibia, who's a DACA advocate and multimedia editor. And Napoleon DeLegend is back. We're going to be talking about the day's news and what... How to think through the next two weeks, because there's just so much at stake here, as we just discussed. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. We have a first-time guest, and please, please, please tell me if I'm butchering your name. Giovanni Alcibia. Is that right? Did I get that? Good. 
Oh, we can speak now? We cool? Oh, you're good to speak, yeah. <laughs> you are free. Uh, Giovanni is a DACA recipient. He's a multimedia editor. Uh, I will be looping back on what he commented on this week that really, or last week, that really moved me. And Napoleon DeLegend is back. He is a hip-hop artist. He is a friend of the show. He's an activist. Uh, he is based in Brooklyn, and I say that because much love to Brooklyn. <laughs> All right, guys. I, I want to start off, um, first topic, which was really shocking to me, um, given how much of the conversation is about turnout right now and how if Democrats and folks who are going to vote for Biden, uh, progressives, independents, Republicans, that it's all about turnout for them. And that is what is going to prevent Trump from from really like tinkering with the election, including voter suppression. So that's why the way to fight his tactics of voter suppression is we turn out. So everything's like vote, 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 vote. That's all you see, right? Except Republicans are now seeing a bright spot in voter registration. Uh, this is a real issue. The This is coming out of the AP. Quote, the Republican Party has cut into Democrats' advantage in voter registration tallies. Across some critical presidential battleground states, a fact they point to as evidence of steady and overlooked enthusiasm for Donald Trump and his party. Now, my hope is that there is a silent majority, including progressives who just like really are sucking it up and supporting Biden um, or people that were just already registered uh, to vote, you know, because Democrats do have a registration advantage. I'm hoping that's it. But but you know, let's let's. How about you, Napoleon? You're you're in a mecca of progressives. Do you feel this this excitement in New York right now? Like, or is? I mean, I mean, I mean, in my, in my neighborhood, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a very like in, in an orthodox like uh, Jewish neighborhood. Uh, so oh, there, no. there, there's a lot of Trump support, <laughs> Trump support like, around here that I could see. But I think it represents like the the whole of Brooklyn is just like mostly yeah. like a pocket in which I live. Um, Did you see I... them burn their masks? <laughs> no, that happened. Oh yeah, there was a big uh, yeah in in the Orthodox Jewish neighborhood in Brooklyn, um, Williamsburg area in particular. There was a mask burning. Yeah. Oh wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. That that's mm-hmm. kind. I, I didn't even hear about that. I just know the COVID cases here are like bad. It's like a like a red zone where I live. Yeah. But um, I, I I mean I don't I don't really sense it. I mean I I always thought like the the, the Republicans had like um. Like already like a, a set voting block, you know what I mean? That 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 always like so now seeing that there's a surge, it's 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 ta- it's a tad bit concerning. It's news to me. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't have thought that, you know, if I didn't if I didn't see that article right there. I really thought the surge was coming from Democrats or others, independents or whatever, want to vote uh, Trump out. So all this means to me is that nothing is won and like we can't fall asleep at the wheel. That's right. So Thank Giovanni, you. you um you tweeted something out a few days ago, and it was uh, talking about how you're a DACA recipient, and yes. and it got a lot of play, um, as it should, because this happened, just to set it up for, for why this t- the timing of this tweet, last week, the conversation shifted suddenly, um, where some progressives came out and were really questioning what was to be materially gained from voting for Biden. And I've heard everything from Biden's a fascist to Trump's not a fascist and nothing is going to change. Now, I'm hoping that our audience um, can think a little bit more multidimensionally and strategically uh, and also understand at a human level that there are things that are at stake here, like real things. Even if we go back to Obama era, right? 
you, Giovanni, are protected. So can you talk about, uh, maybe you can put that tweet up on screen while you talk about what motivated you to tweet. Well, I'm a DACA recipient, right? I'm obviously affected uh, by Trump's policies, right? Trump took DACA to the Supreme Court. He failed. Um, the funny thing is that the judges, the majority of the judges, uh, seem to agree that DACA is un unconstitutional. But the reason they voted against Trump was because uh, I think Justice Roberts called the attempt capricious. Mm -hmm. So Trump failed based on incompetence, not because the Supreme Court justices necessarily disagree with him, right? So Trump failed that fight. The next thing that he does is he rescinds the DACA protections, right? Before, it's every two years that you have to renew it. Well, every year and a half, you have to renew it couple months before it expires. You pay about $500 for the paperwork and you renew it. Then you, <laughs> then you- Not alone, uh, I mean. Yeah. Oh, wait, it gets better or worse. So now uh, Trump rescinded DACA protections as opposed to two years. It's one year now. So we have to uh, uh, resubmit every, it seems by yearly now. So that's gonna cost you about $1,000 a year right, to resubmit. And it's something that people are not talking about. It's, I think it's an obvious strategy to um, to make it a financial burden. Mm -hmm. So people don't, um, you know, apply every, you know, every year or two years. So it's it's tough, right? It's, it's gonna be an economic hurdle. And Trump obviously wants to get rid of the program. Uh, he, Trump is obviously a racist fascist, right? So yes, like I, like I said in a video that I made, yeah, Biden is a neoliberal corporatist, but he's not a fat, a fat I'm trying not to curse, I'm sorry. <laughs> but Biden is not a fascist. So already there, right? The material livelihood of close to 1 million DACA uh, recipients is on the balance this election, as well as other minorities yes. that are directly affected by Trump's policies. And the political moment has shifted too. So, so not only are there a large group of people who are already underserved in 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 all politics right even in leftist spaces even in even voices on shows right that's why i thought it was really important to have you on because i feel like this just isn't part of the conversation in a very clear and personal way so not it's only not, is you're right is that, yeah so not only is that a serious concern but there's the there's the immediate material concerns, but there's also this avenue where I truly believe, and I don't listen. The Biden, the, the neoliberals have gone after me personally. I've gotten a lot of personal attacks against me, articles written against me, smears. Right? I'm not friends with these people. So anybody who's calling me a hack, like, just do me a favor and look at my history, okay? They, call, they called me a hack too, by the way. Yeah, it's, so, I, I think there's uh, uh, <laughs> these people who, yeah, I'm very curious to see what kind of work they do. Um, so even if that were the case, I do think, and Napoleon, like, I know you're thinking about this stuff strategically. Biden is not going to be able to get away with Obama policies that have now been proven false. There is now, we didn't know, we were not awake or at least as a movement, large enough as a movement, to see that when Arne Duncan was pushing charter schools down our throats with the waiting for Superman propaganda, it was not going to turn out the way that we, and Betsy DeVos has proven that. And there are multiple other issues. Yes, neoliberalism paved the path for Trump, but Trump basically proved that neoliberalism is phony. 
And so now Biden won't have a choice but to actually reverse some Obama decisions. So, like, what do you think is going on the left right now? Why do you think folks are 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 staging a fit two weeks before the election, telling folks not to vote? I mean, I I, I think it's a, I think there's some 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 of it is like posturing to be like, yo, who, who's the most leftist, and and it's that type of competition. And I mean. I don't want to get in people's head, but a part of it, I think, is a little bit immature. Some of them, they, they, they have they have a case, but my thing is, times, like you said, you made a great point, Time have, times have changed. Like, the Obama years have nothing to do, we, we, we've lived through four years of Trump now. Like, that, people are awake now, people are politicized, people are radicalized right now. So they're not gonna be, there's gonna be protests, there's gonna be pressure. People weren't thinking about things like that. Even me, like seeing Giovanni talk about his experience, I had no idea what it was like on loud on a yearly basis. You got to shell, shell out $500 and things like that. It makes things a lot more real to me when I hear the situations because I don't have to deal with it. You know, even though I'm an immigrant, but I'm, I'm an American citizen now. But it's uh, it's so important that like these inhumane, cruel policies are, uh, they're just going to get worse. First off, if Trump, uh, becomes president. People such as Giovanni and, and, and millions of others are going to be affected by these things. And we have the opportunity to stop it, to, 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 to lessen the suffering, and also to be to, 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 to leverage our, our strength against Biden and Biden administration and put pressure on them to really have more humane policies when it comes to immigration. I, I, I am of the belief that the movements won't let him ignore at right. this stage of the movement, it's it's much stronger than it really has ever been. And even though Bernie lost, Bernie was not the movement. Bernie was a voice for a collective of movements. So one aspect, I think, and again, going back to Giovanni, your, your statement was so powerful and moved me. And I encourage others who are watching, listening to do the same. If your circumstances will be affected if Trump stays in office, it's not so much what we get from Biden, which I do think we can get some things out of. It's what we lose if Trump stays in office. And if we're not looking at this through a human lens, like what you were able to express, Giovanni, was what's on the line here is like think in terms of humanity, not in terms of a philosophical debate. Mm -hmm. You're not in, as as as. As Noam Chomsky says so well, we're not in a seminar room when the uh, the government is oppressing you. There's no room for debate over like a utopian art. I don't know. I mean, Giovanni, like, how how is the response been? People people are calling you a hack. I've gone many responses, right, uh, on Facebook, on different groups. Uh, but something that I want to bring out is that um, something I brought up in a video is people that are supposed to be your allies right seem to be turning their backs on a lot of minorities including me i'll give you an example uh for example of many content creators angie speaks right she made a tweet one time that you know um if trump wins she's going to be having an orgasm right it's like okay as well how, how does that work for me right I, is this I a leftist supposed yeah. leftist supposed supposed content supposed creator it. i think we have right. to think about this yeah also wait up though kyle kolinsky he talked about how if uh, he wants to be blamed if Biden loses this time. So he, I, I just, I, I want them to acknowledge, yes, I am okay with Biden losing mm -hmm. and I'm okay with DACA recipients and other minorities being hurt by this as a political statement. 
So I want them to tell me that's the case. I don't want them to throw it around. Um, Brianna, Brianna Taylor, right? Uh, did Brianna I say Joy her Gray. name correct? Brianna Joy, yeah, sorry. Brianna Joy Gray. <laughs> Brianna, sorry. Uh, Brianna Joy Gray. Um, she made, she, she had this rhetoric with Noam Chomsky of what are you going to be telling the working class person X, Y, and Z, right? So I would ask her, what would you be telling me as a DACA recipient to, you know, to let Biden lose? So it's, it's, it's just sad, right? I, I was banned from our socialism for a day or two for posting, uh, for making a post about, hey guys, uh, should we not care about DACA recipients and other minorities being hurt by uh, the Trump presidency? And I got banned. You so got banned from I, where? Uh, our socialism on Reddit. On Reddit, yeah. So this just shows me, right, that there is a, yeah, our, 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 we're not being hurt, basically. Well, it's also um, not Marxist. I mean, even Lenin advocate. I mean, as Piper, who's on our Piper Winkler is one of our team members on our show. Um, she said even Lenin advocated for voting, and sure enough, you know, I spent the weekend absorbed in 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 reading some political biographies um, to remind us that we've been here in this moment before. And there is this erasure of, I, I think, you know, another aspect of this, like you know, you mentioned. Um, Brianna, who's some of these people are really good friends of mine, and I and I deeply appreciate them, and 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 most of their commentary I agree with. But what I really wa- was confused about was she was saying, "Well, what about black working class voters?" Now, okay, I mean, I would love to talk to black working class voters and see what they think right now. But also, black working class voters, the majority, voted for Biden. So I don't know if that's the case that needs to be made. I, what do you think, Napoleon? Yeah, I mean, like it's important for these people. Like I said, I, I, I. I from what I know, I tend to agree with like Brianna. I tend to agree with a lot of what Kyle Kalinsky stands for. But there's certain issues like that where you have to hold people with a large influence, with a large listenership to, to the fire when it comes to things like that. And, and and somebody like Giovanni is a perfect case because it's like, look, that might be funny. It might be a witty tweet. It might it, it might have a certain effect. And who knows like what what was behind the, the intent behind the, the tweet or whatever that person was saying. But sometimes we forget about these realities because we're not facing them directly. That's right. And 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 we have to be sensitive about everybody's plight. And and the, the doc, people like Giovanni, the, the, all these groups need to come together, and 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 and, and it makes us stronger. So let's not alienate people for no reason, just for some sort of a rhetorical battle or, or, or wins or a little win or, or something like that. I think it's very important for us to be watchful of what we say and why. And, and that right there is a clear reason why we should really, like I said, once again, we should really get Trump out of there. And it's very important for us to get Trump out of there. It's crucial. So one thing I like to say is I don't listen to commentators for my political advice. I go, I try my hardest to go to the activists. If, I'm, if I want to know something, even as a reporter, but just also as like a voter and an activist and organizer, if I want to know, if I want to inform folks about education, I talk to the education expert. If I want to inform folks about how lives are going to be materially affected, I go to folks who have come out and said their lives have been materially affected. I urge listeners to pay attention who is trying to influence your vote and why. There is an actual monetary, whether they're conscious of it or not, you know, Napoleon, you just hit on it. I'll say it as a host. There are a lot of segments we could do that could be clickbaity. There are a lot of segments that are going to drive up our subscriptions. There are a lot of segments that are going to go viral. But that, I don't think, is worth it 
when the stakes are so high in this election, as we said in the first segment in this panel, when Republicans voter registration is up and we're worried about them suppressing the vote. It's just too, too sensitive right now. So if you are thinking about this and it's you really don't want to vote, fine. OK, don't listen to me. Go listen to the organizers on the streets. Go listen to the DACA recipients. Go listen to the communities who are not saying to stay home. That's why I listen to not folks whose livelihoods depend on clicks. Absolutely. <laughs> and thank you for that, by the way. Amen. No. Uh, listen, I may be getting a bunch of like black flag Twitter uh, attacking me right now, but listen, I've been here before in 2016. It was the same thing with Jill Stein. And, um, you know, and I urge the folks who have these platforms instead of going on rants and, and have folks on. And something I want to add is that we're losing so much time. I yeah. think you mentioned in a video with uh, Sam Cedar how we could be using this time right now to organize in order to be a thorn in Biden's butt. Um, see, I'm trying not to curse. Um, <laughs> uh, so we're losing time. And Kyle Kalinsky pulls out a video, I think, uh, when the Brianna uh, Joy Gray uh, debacle came about, how how it's a, it's a valid conversation. It's a valid debate. We're three weeks away from the election. We should be organizing two. right now. Two oh, weeks. two weeks. Today. Today. <laughs> two weeks away from the election. Uh, yeah. So we're two weeks away from the election and we're still still having this conversation. What are you talking about? This is time we organize, right, to start, you know, coming together to figure out how we're going to battle effectively a Biden administration. Um, and and it's just really upsetting, right? Yeah. Well, this is, I will I, go ahead. Who's benefiting? Who's benefit, be, benefiting right now? What's, what's the, the best course of action and who... who like, who are you trying to, whose agenda you're pushing right now? That's really the important thing right now. So like what he said, we should be organizing, doing what we do. It's one step at a time. The mm -hmm. first step is making sure Biden is there. Second step, we go for Biden. And that, it, we, we go, we attack, you know, we leverage, we push on Biden. That's simple as that. I mean, what's the, what's the alternative strategy? I don't hear it. Doesn't make yeah. sense to me. I, I, I don't want to focus too much on this in terms of the show in the next two weeks, but I did feel it, it deserved a space because on one hand, I think this is dividing the left at a moment when we should be unifying and talking about the human impact of Trump's policies and what policies we want to move forward that not only amend what destruction he's done, but make a more livable and just country. Um, with that being said, folks who have platforms need to make the case very clear. And what is to be gained, like you said, Napoleon, like what do you get out of that? And what could you be doing with your time? And I think moving forward, we're gonna be talking about uh, what's at risk, what we need to do. We're gonna have Joshua Khan Russell on next week with you, Napoleon, to talk about the coup that is being organized potentially and how to fight that off. Because ultimately, you know, I'm of the belief that if Trump stays in office, we're gonna see a lot of leftist accounts shut down and monitored, and none of these conversations are going to even matter because we're not going to have an avenue and we're going to be like writing with invisible ink again. So, <laughs> uh, guys, I, I really appreciate you joining. Um, thanks to everybody for entertaining this conversation. These are tough conversations. I love our allies on the left, but we got to do better. We don't want to look back at history and say, what could we have done with our time? What could we have been done with our voices to make sure that the most vulnerable people in our community are supported.
And can I add something real quick? Of course, please, please, please do. Um, I also feel that liberals have done a horrible, terrible job at appealing to leftism, right? As opposed to what, what you said, you know, making this a human interest story, right? The, the material human implications based on empathy. Their strategy is just crap. Yeah. It's it's voter shaming. And it's I see so many videos of of uh, I, I imagine to be liberals, right, supporting Trump. And their strategy makes me cringe, right? Wait, and, supporting and, Trump or sorry, or sorry, my apologies. Biden. Supporting Biden, right. supporting Biden, and their videos and their strategies make me cringe. And I want Biden to win. So that's when you know it's bad, right? Mm -hmm. So um, they, they also need to have a better strategy to make matters worse. I believe it was announced today that Biden is going to be putting GOP members mm -hmm. in, in his cabinet, right? This is the time right now where we should be out protesting his. That's right. His person. Um, so we're just, we're really behind. Uh, just the left is so fragmented by nature, it seems. So it's it's bad all around in, in, in my perspective. Um, I wish things were better. Um, Jane McAlevey's been on the show before. She talks about uh, union busting. And, and I do believe that there's a form of left busting happening. So uh, stay focused, stay to the message, stay to the cause. Napoleon, you know this so well. You've seen this, this back, I mean, your father, uh, was, was an activist, right? Yeah, he was part of a socialist party in the Comores Island, like in his younger days. And uh, there was a lot of plant. There were some plants. People discovered that they were playing for the other side, but people don't know that you know had spies, did different things like that. That France was putting in to disrupt that socialist party who wasn't uh, pro French interest at the yeah. time. So then there was attempts on his life and things like that. So these are things that it's, it's politics as usual. It happens. We have to keep our eyes focused on the prize. And really, we, we have to, like, that's why, you know, not to be meta, but I love shows like like you because you'll bring somebody like Giovanni on, like you said, and actually speak to the person instead of, like, being on, like, trying to put yourself on the pedestal, like you're making, we, we, we have to give everybody a voice so people understand the stakes that are here mm -hmm. at, at, at stake. I'm not a DACA recipient, but when I hear Giovanni, I'm like, oh, damn, you know, it should be in the forefront of my consciousness when even when I vote. And it, it yeah. was probably not before before I, I heard his story. And this, these things are important to, to, to showcase these stories. Absolutely. And, and that's what was so powerful about Bernie was, you know, his rallies were not like traditional Democratic Party rallies or even if they have those anymore, fundraisers, I should say. Uh, he had DACA recipients on. He had, you know, people from the community, union workers who, who had been, you know, lost their jobs, folks who had lost their housing, who were in housing justice. Um, this was what made up the Bernie campaign. And we have to keep those stories near and close to our hearts and remember that this is what it's about. It's not a political game. Um, so, you know, as much as folks want to attack us saying uh, voting is not going to give us the solutions needed, it's movements, it's both. And, you know, when you're not thinking about the material interests of somebody and you're not showing up on the streets and you're just on Twitter, I'm not saying the, the voices on, on, on our media have are there to disrupt. I think there's another thing happening there. But I do think that there are folks there who are there to d divide and, and disrupt. And we have to stay focused, you said, Napoleon. All right, guys, I truly appreciate uh, Giovanni Guzman. I would love for you to come back on uh, at some point if you're if you're down for it. And uh, it would be my absolute pleasure. So wonderful. Yeah, of course. Thank you. And Napoleon legend, as always.
Thank you for joining and we'll see you next week. And special shout outs to the chat. Tico Todd, CRC, a solid show today with Derek Giovanni Napoleon. Gracias, Nomiki. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for your support. And Duke of Bread, uh, quote, official Antifa codename <laughs> equals comrade Nemo the bearer of keys. Nemo Key for short. This is an ongoing joke that goes on on the Majority Report because Sam Cedar, host of Majority Report, um, cannot get my name. <laughs> he got close today. People are coming up with mnemonic devices. It's very clever. We need sure. We should just have like a series of shirts and mugs and like stickers with all the pronunciations of my name. Um, Duke of Bread. Oh, that was Duke of Bread. Thank you so much. And of course, Professor Harvey K, who's in the live chat. And thank you, MIDI Doctors, for working the algorithms. Yes, I don't understand that, but you guys do, and I'm really appreciative of what and special thanks to bob the mod and everyone in the live chat oh wait one more one more tico todd thank you so much again i guess it was another uh oh for the first youtube super chat i can't i'm not watching the chat so i'm getting little updates as we go um and raul ventura thank you very very much all right guys uh we're gonna show giovanni's video before we we run out of the show so you can see his plea and i urge you all if you can move three people into understanding what's at stake. I'm not a voter shamer, okay? Like, that's that's another jam. That's something that the, the, the liberals are doing. Um, this is about how do we move people into understanding what's at stake. So if you can take even his story or someone else's story that is that would be personally impacted, their lives would be personally impacted, please try to move three voters if you can on the left, center, wherever. Just try to move some voters if you can. On that note, we will see you tomorrow at 3 p.m. Eastern on the Nomi Key Show. Thanks to everybody. Thank you. The House announced that they're winding down on DACA protections. So imagine yourself in my situation, a lefty, and people that are supposed to be your allies are writing this type of shit. This comes from a lefty content creator who goes by the name of Angie Speaks. She wrote in a tweet, Seeing Radlip simping over Biden guarantees that I'm going to come when Trump wins. Do you know who will not be having an orgasm if Trump wins again? DACA recipients. Just a thought. And actually other minorities, for that matter.